This is the Ipsy SDA Media Network. My life has been a journey. Um, my background is that I'm biracial. My mother was white. My father was black. I was born in the mid-50s and was living in Detroit on the west side as the riots and everything was taking place. And I really did not see where I fit in. I was not be able to identify completely with my father's side and my mother's side had completely rejected me. And so as an adolescent, being the oldest sibling and my parents not preparing me for this particular aspect of my journey, I felt lost. And even when I joined the church and was baptized in 1984, that didn't solve the problem. I tried to convince myself that it didn't matter, that I didn't need to know where I came from. I was a Christian. I was a child of God. I'd accepted Christ as my Savior, and if I just fit in anywhere, you know, that would be enough. And so I kind of left my life in limbo and really didn't try to address it because I didn't really know where to begin. You know, the scripture reading this morning in Ezekiel chapter 20, 12 through 20, tells us that when God called his people out of the land of Egypt, that this day that he had identified himself as the creator with, they would be acknowledged as his people based on that day because it pointed to him as the creator. And they didn't keep the covenant. And so after they wandered in the wilderness but not consumed, they're about to enter into the land that flowed with milk and honey. And he said to the children of the parents that died in the wilderness, now I'm giving you my Sabbath, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. It goes on to say in Ezekiel chapter 20 that the children broke the covenant as well. And you all know the story, but what I wanted to share, and this is what's full of hope, because in light of what has taken place in my life, I'm here today as a testament that God is merciful, that God understands our circumstances. And even when we fail him, he does not fail us. So I want to read in your hearing Jeremiah chapter 31. And I'm going to read verses 31 through 34, because this is a new covenant promise. And it's a new covenant promise to the descendants of those who broke the covenant with him. Verse 31 says, the days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. This new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31, which was foretold 500 years before the birth of Christ, is also found in the New Testament. It's found in the epistle to the Hebrews, where that same covenant is stated. I'm making a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I'm going to forgive their sins. I'm not going to remember their iniquities. I'm going to put my law in them. They shall all know me. I will be their God and they shall be my people. It's interesting that we try to assign this new covenant, Brother Michael, to the church. But the writer here is clear that this new covenant is with the same folk whose ancestors I brought out of the land of Egypt. Paul in Romans chapter 11, writing to the Gentiles, seems to have this in mind. When he asked the question, it's rhetorical. Has God forsaken his people? Has God cast off those that he chose as his own when he brought them out of the land of Egypt? And the response is, of course not. Of course not. And he's telling the Gentiles, be careful not being a part of the root, but having been grafted in. For if you're not humble, having been grafted in, you can be grafted out. And the ones that I'm making this new covenant with will replace you and be grafted back in. Verse 25 of Romans 11, he says, I'm going to tell you a mystery. I am going to graft them back in. And it will be done at the time that the number of the Gentiles is completed. Or they'll be grafted in when my use for the Gentiles in spreading my message and glorifying me throughout the earth has been completed. I've entitled this sermon, I'm glad, Sister Young, that it was up there because I was sitting there, I couldn't remember it. An Awakening. An Awakening. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Bless us according to our great need and help us to see ourselves in your word and in your will. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. In the Motor City area, they just completed, as probably all of you know, Project 22. This was an evangelistic meeting that the conference had decided was a good time to have. And when the evangelistic team had come to Detroit, they arrived a few weeks early or 10 days early. They wanted to canvas the field. And one of the evangelists wanted to know, is there anybody amongst you all that is working currently with the first day church? And because I'm a part of the community prayer line, they were aware that I had been involved with a Baptist church in southwest Detroit since November of 2021. I've been privileged to lead a panel discussion every Tuesday night on the book of Genesis. 
this church in southwest Detroit was transitioning from a first-day church to a Sabbath-keeping church. And so I had been invited with others on the, by the pastor to be a part of a panel to help the church become knowledgeable about the truth about God's Sabbath. And so when I told the evangelist Paul that I was working with the church, he wondered if Project 22 would be beneficial in their transitioning. And I was happy to tell him that the transition process had already been completed. They now were a Sabbath-keeping church. But he wondered further, even with that, would it be beneficial for them to come to the meetings? Because there's going to be more discussed than the seven-day Sabbath. And I shared with Brother Paul that the Baptist minister that was transitioning his church from a first-day church to a Sabbath-keeping church was baptized into the Seventh-day Adventist church when he was a teen. Sister Perry, he actually attended Davis Academy for a while. So he was very much aware of the Seventh-day Adventist teachings. And so Pastor Paul was happy to hear about that as well. And he assumed that because the Baptist minister had been a Seventh-day Adventist as a youth, and based on where we are in time, and Jesus may be coming soon, that the pastor felt the conviction that he felt in his days of his youth and wanted to bring his church in line with what he understood to be the will of God. And so when I told Pastor Paul, it was absolutely a part of the reason that this transition was taking place, but that was not all. I told him, there is an awakening that's taking place. In 1999, the General Conference of the Seventh-day Adventist Church published a book. I'm sure you all know about it. It was written by Charles Bradford. It was called Sabbath Roots, the African Connection. And Elder Bradford went into some detail as to why on the continent of Africa, the Seventh-day Sabbath was exploding at that time. So many inroads were being made, even for the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I don't know what the statistics are now, but prior to COVID, most of the success that we had evangelistically was on the continent of Africa. Elder Bradford said that there's a proclivity amongst the Africans for Seventh-day Sabbath. And he traced the Assyrian captivity period where after the Assyrian empire fell, there was dispersion in some of the tribes, they believed. Beta Israel and Ethiopia and the Limba tribe in South Africa had migrated onto the continent of Africa. So they had some Sabbath understanding based on the children of Israel coming into the continent. He also noted at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., that all the tribe of Judah didn't go north and west into Europe. They went down into Africa. First settling in the northern part of Africa, but that's where the Roman Empire still had jurisdiction, and some even migrated further south than that. And then Pastor Bradford noted in the book that the Church of Ethiopia, who in the 4th century A.D. as a country 
embraced Christianity as a religion. And from the time the Ethiopian church embraced Christianity as a religion, they have kept the seventh-day Sabbath from the fourth century even until now. They even have a health message according to Leviticus chapter 11. And so with us having the urgency to spread our message, that's one place we don't have to go. We don't have to repair the breach there because they've always maintained Sabbath observance. When Martin Luther was making his transition out of the Roman Catholic Church as he was leading the Protestant Reformation in Germany, he was infatuated with the Church of Ethiopia. Luther was infatuated because you could really trace Christianity and the church all the way back to Acts chapter 8 when the Ethiopian eunuch was reading the 53rd chapter of the book of Isaiah and Philip the evangelist encountered him there and said, do you know what you're reading? And he said, how can I know except somebody explains to me? And he started to explain to him about this suffering sin bearer. And then the Ethiopian said, are you the man or is this another prophet? And he explained to him who Jesus was. And you know the story. Saw the waters a little bit there away from where they were at and said, what hinders you from baptizing me? I want to become a follower. Early church father, Irenaeus of Lyons, says that this Ethiopian was the first evangelist to take the gospel to Ethiopia, which led to the nation converting in the fourth century AD and Luther was amazed by that that you could trace Christianity from the early days of the apostles from the Bible itself to the church that was existing at that time Luther penned on the doors of Wittenberg in 1517 his 95 objections to the doctrines of the Catholic Church the Protestant Reformation was well developing at that time And in 1534 A.D., don't know if it was by way of invitation from Luther himself, but a cleric from the Church of Ethiopia named Michael the Deacon came to Wittenberg and met with Martin Luther, the great German reformer. And while they were there, Luther was sharing with Michael the Deacon his rediscovering of things in scripture that he was now implementing in Germany only to learn that what Luther was beginning to do in Germany was already being done in the church of Ethiopia. And so Luther said to his followers there, these black people are your siblings. These black people are your brothers and sisters. Luther extended the right hand of fellowship to the church of Ethiopia, something he did not do with the Hussites of Bohemia under John Hush that preceded him in the Protestant Reformation. Nor did Luther extend the right hand of fellowship to the churches of Switzerland, the Reformed churches under Ulrich Zwingli. Luther extended the right hand of fellowship to the church of Ethiopia. In fact, he said, and I'm quoting The church of Ethiopia is the true church. These are the forerunners of the Protestant Reformation. Luther said if Protestantism had a symbol and a name, 
its symbol and its name would be Ethiopia. Now, I went to Lutheran West High School, and they made me take religion classes for eight semesters. And we studied the Protestant Reformation at length. And they did not have any of that in any of their writings. Luther, who's given a whole lot of credit for the Protestant Reformation and where Christianity finds itself now, where it has the scripture as the authority, gave the credit where the credit was due. He gave it to the church of Ethiopia. It's interesting because when I retired in 2018, I had a lot of time on my hands. And I just want to be honest with you. I was interested in the origin of Scripture. I don't know about y'all, but when I joined the Adventist church, they gave me this, said it's the word of God. Didn't know where it came from, didn't know how we got it. I just took it and ran with it. But I began to want to understand the origin of it. How did we get it? If when they came out of Egypt, they had the tablets with the Ten Commandments, and they had the book of the law, which was a limited amount of writings, where did we get what we have? And so I looked at the King James Version. Because 800 years before the King James Version was authorized and translated in 1611, the Ethiopian church already had the most complete, comprehensive Bible in the whole world. And so when I looked at it, Brother Mike, when the King James Version was first put together, it was 80 books. 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. And there were 14 apocrypha writings between the two testament. It was 80 books. And it was 80 books from 1611 until 1885. In the United States, where King James Bibles were produced, they removed the books even sooner in 1872. And I wondered, why would you leave these books out after having them a part of the King James Bible? for almost 300 years. When I looked at some of the writings that were in the Ethiopic Bible, one book that struck me was the book of Enoch. I saw that it was not a part of the King James Bible initially, nor was it a part of the 14 apocryphal books that was in the King James Bible for, you know, 274 years. Tertullian the early Christian apologist, Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, Tertullian, who most theologians are recognized as the father of Western theology, said that the Jews, when they put their Old Testament canon together, left the book of Enoch out because it pointed to Jesus as the Christ. It pointed to Jesus as the Christ. Now, the 39 books that we have in our Old Testament are the exact 24 books that the Jews put in their Tanakh, their Bible. The reason there's a difference that we have 39 and they have 24 is because the Jews treat the 12 minor prophet books as one book. And they don't separate Ezra and Nehemiah. They don't separate Samuel they don't separate kings. They don't separate chronicles. 
it's the exact same 39 that they have with their 24. But they did not include the book of Enoch for the reason that Tertullian stated. And so I wanted to explore and look at that even further. What is in the book of Enoch that specifically would address Jesus as the Christ that the Jews did not want in their Bible? All of you are familiar with the Mount of Transfiguration. It's in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus took three of his disciples up on this high mountain, and he was transfigured before them. Moses and Elijah came down, and those three disciples saw Moses and Elijah speaking to Jesus. It's recorded in all three of the Gospels. And in all three of the Gospels, it tells us at a certain point, a cloud enveloped them these three disciples, and they heard the Father's voice declaring Jesus to be the Son of God. In the King James translation, all three synoptic gospels similarly read the same way. When the Father's voice was heard, they write it as saying, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him, or some variation of that. This is my beloved son. I love him. Listen to him. But if you go to Luke's gospel and you go, Mark Brazil, to any other of the translations, you'll hear it translated this way, which is different from Matthew and Mark. This is my beloved son who I love, the chosen one, my chosen one. This is my beloved son, the chosen one. In the book of Enoch, 14 times the Messiah is presented as the elect one or the chosen one. And so this book was omitted by the Jews, Tertullian believes, for that reason. I was also interested in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Because when they were discovered, beginning in 1947, through a 10-year period, we were able to identify from those manuscripts, which are the oldest manuscripts that we have, what was considered scripture at that time by the Essenes that had possession of these old manuscripts, which are the sacred writings. Of all the manuscripts that they found... They have manuscripts for every book in our Old Testament except one. It's the book of Esther. To this date, as they continue to research, looking for more and more manuscripts, the only book that they've not found a manuscript for was the book of Esther. The manuscripts in which they found the most of the Old Testament books that we have Our Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Psalms, and Isaiah. Of all the manuscripts that they found over this 10-year period in these caves that they've been excavating, because these are the oldest manuscripts that we have of Scripture. There are no original writings. Those five books, they have found more manuscripts for than any other books, which means that 
to those that possessed them at the time they possessed them, these were the most important books. Sister Perry, the next book that had the most manuscripts that they found was a book that also was in the Ethiopic Bible, but didn't find its way into the European Bible, either as scripture or apocrypha. And it's the book called the Book of Jubilees or the Book of Divisions. That book they found more manuscripts for than any other Old Testament books of those manuscripts except Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Psalms, and Isaiah. Now, some of you might ask the question, or maybe you didn't, but I asked the question. Just like with the apocryphal writings that were part of the King James Bible for 274 years, and you decided in 1885 in Europe to take them out, and in America in 1872 you took them out, why was the Book of Jubilees left out? And Mark Rosell, I started looking at the genealogies because I thought something may be up with this. I don't know about you all, but I'm interested in where are we in this story? Where are we in this story? And who gets to tell the story? And maybe I'm more passionate than some others are because for years I don't know who I am. I don't fit in with black folk. I don't fit in with white folks. I'm just kind of in the middle. And so maybe it's just my interest and it's not anybody else's interest. But I started looking at the genealogies in Genesis chapter 10. I was interested in the three sons of Noah, Japheth, Shem, and Ham. Searching the genealogies. Now, you know, if you've looked at these genealogies, there are no women in these genealogies, it said this man begat this son, and this son begat this. No women had no babies in these genealogies. <laughs> but it's interesting that in the book of Jubilees, it not only tells you the name of the women that were married to these men that bore these men these sons, it tells you the name of the father of the women that were married to these men, that bore these men these sons. And so I noticed something. And you do this when you got time when you get home. I want you to look at those genealogies using the King James translation. So it starts out with the genealogy of Japheth. Then it's the genealogy of Ham. Then it's the genealogy of Shem. And the genealogy of Shem is expanded in Genesis chapter 11. The most verses from those three genealogies is the genealogy of Ham. The fewest verses in these genealogies is the genealogy of Japheth. It tells you who the sons of Japheth were. And then it says this. These are the descendants of the Gentiles. Now we know that the descendants of Ham are the folk went down there in Africa. Canaan settled in Palestine. We know the descendants of Shem 
was in Mesopotamia. They were in the Middle East. And we know the descendants of Japheth was over in Europe. Genesis chapter 10, verse 5 of these three genealogies only identifies the descendants of Japheth as the Gentiles. And so I wonder, Sister Young, why wouldn't the descendants of Ham be listed as Gentiles as well? And this is where the book of Jubilees gives some information. It gives you some insight. And the Africans have it. Not as apocrypha, but as scripture. 800 years before this was put together, they had already put it in their Bible, in their Old Testament, as scripture. When the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, which are the oldest manuscripts that we have of ancient writings, these books that were in the African canon was found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. Why were they not included by the Europeans? Why were they left out by the Europeans? And when you go to the book of Jubilees, as I stated, it tells you not only the woman that the man was married to that had these children, it tells you the daddy of the woman that the man was married to in the genealogies. Now, it's noteworthy, and I'm almost done, but I want you to read this. I want you to research it. Because I'm telling you, or I came to tell you, this is our history. We just don't know it yet. And once we discover that this is really our history, then our purpose will line up with who we are. Because even though we mess up, God said, I still got a purpose for them. These are my people called by my name that I identify with based on the day that I set aside for them to worship me, the true creator. Why is the Sabbath blowing up in Africa? Why is there a proclivity of Sabbath worship in Africa? I'm getting excited. Am I still hooked up, Mark? Why did the Europeans in Rome change the day of worship? And then the Protestants of Europe co-signed the change. See, Rome said we did it based on the authority that we have to do it. It ain't in here. We got the authority. We did it. Y'all bow down to us. But now the Protestants of Europe take this and use this to teach the world that the law of God has been abolished and the day of worship with it. But in Africa, when the Sabbath came there, it's been maintained uninterrupted. The only time that the European church had any influence with Ethiopia was when Islam was exploding and they were moving west through Africa, all the way into Europe. The church 
or the country of Ethiopia at that time reached out to Portugal and Spain to assist them in the onslaught of Islam that was taking over the whole continent. And the Jesuit order took advantage at that time and hooked up with the government of Ethiopia and the Jesuits were there. And they were there for about three decades. But it was the church, the lay people, the church, not the government, that ordered that all Jesuits be removed. And 20 years later, they burned every book. And they kept their fidelity to God and his law. And it's been maintained all this time. See, in the book of Jubilees, it tells you the woman that was married to this man named Eber. Elder Brazel, it was interesting. When I was looking at the genealogy of Shem, as soon as it mentions Shem in Genesis 10, it says Shem is the father of all the children of Eber. I'm like, well, who's Eber? You know, this ain't his son. This ain't his grandson. Eber is Shem's great-great-grandson. And as soon as you get to Shem in Genesis 10, in that genealogy, it immediately directs your attention to Eber, his great-great-grandson. It's through Eber that we get to Terah, Abraham's father, and obviously we get to Abraham. Eber is the connection between Shem and Abraham. Eber, Eber. And when you go to the book of Jubilees, it tells you that Eber's wife was a woman named Azurad. Azurad was the daughter of Nimrod. Nimrod is the son of Cush. Cush is the son of Ham. So in the veins or the blood, in the blood in the veins of Abraham, it's the blood of Shem and it's the blood of Ham. And the Jews don't want that to be known. Neither do the Europeans. Because in Genesis 10 verse 5, it says that the descendants of Japheth are the Gentiles. Now, what did I say all that to say? There's an awakening. This Baptist preacher, he didn't get convicted about the Sabbath just because he was baptized as a teenager and went to Davison Academy. There is an awakening. And maybe COVID got us all sleep. But all over this country and this world, there's an intense study going on. And people of color are trying to determine, where am I in this story? Where am I in the book? What's been removed? Why has it been removed? What's not been included? Why has it not been included? Now, I know we're a conservative Protestant denomination, and I may not can come back, but y'all invited me. So I said, I'm going to get it in just in case I can't come back. I know, but this is important to me. I hope it's important to you. 
Because I'm, I'm, I'm learning now. This is our story. This is my story. And I don't need nobody's permission to research it, to learn it, to study it, and to share it. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes unto me except the Father who sent me draweth him. I love the church. But the church is God's people. It's not a name. It's not a set of rules. It's an experience. It's a journey with a purpose attached to it. I'm not coming to church and doing church just to be around folk. I'm doing this because there's some purpose for my life attached to it. And I need to learn what this purpose is that's attached to it because I got to be ready to die for it. This got to be real for me. And I don't know about y'all, but we're in unique times. And God is letting this happen for a reason. These two years that we've been under these conditions, every day I'm up looking at this thing, researching, trying to learn, trying to understand. Because I believe this is all in divine order and it's all a part of the purpose of God. Jesus said he was the truth. And I'm done. And this is what he said. The truth shall set you free. And I mean this with all of my heart. And I want you to hear it. This is my last statement, Brother Bazaar. Whom the Son has set free is free indeed. Whom the Son has set free is free indeed. We're all free, brothers and sisters. God has set us free. Let us pursue truth wherever it leads us. And when we get there, together we can just say amen. That's what the Baptist minister said to me. He said, David, I'm looking for anybody, somebody that will take this Read it and study it contextually, not with some preconceived doctrine attached to it. Just take it as it is, study it contextually, and wherever we end up, that's where we end up. And so I thank God for the Baptist minister, because he might lose his congregation. They may not all follow, but he's willing to risk it all. Because there is an awakening that's taking place. That's all I've come to tell you. People are waking up everywhere. In my prayer, in my plea, in my belief, is that we're going to join them. And together, we will fulfill our purpose as the chosen people of God. God bless you, Ypsilanti.